we didn't expect anything during filming. I mean, these were three guys. It was a, it was a skeleton crew of like three people: a cameraman, a sound guy, and Jason. And they were like pigs on a blanket sleeping on our floor. So we knew this 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 wasn't you know a big budget you know Spielberg situation. I mean, this was hardcore <laughs> documentary on no money. And so none of us expected anything. And, and on day one at the film festival, there were lines all the way around the building, and we could not believe it. You're listening to Everyday Food and Wine, the show about innovators, creators, and experts in the fields of food and wine. I'm Sarah Faraday, and on today's show, I speak with an incredible guest who you might recognize as having starred in the feature-length documentary film trilogy, Psalm, Psalm Into the Bottle, and Psalm 3, Master Sommelier Brian McClintock. Brian is one of under 270 master sommeliers in the entire world. He's been featured in numerous national and international publications and was named the wine guy to hire by Departures Magazine and among 40 under 40 tastemakers by wine enthusiasts. Brian is also the founder of Viticole, an online wine club focusing on organically farmed custom bottlings that he curates with his favorite winemakers from around the world. On this episode, Brian and I discuss everything behind the scenes of the incredible journey to film the Psalm trilogy, to becoming a master sommelier, and perhaps the announcement of a fourth Psalm feature in the making. We will also be diving into the fascinating topic of regenerative farming, as well as his foreseeable uprising of hard ciders. Brian is a true lover of nature and currently calls the mountains in Santa Barbara home. Due to the nature of where this is being recorded, there will be a few parts during this episode where the sound quality may get just a little disrupted. However, it's a story that you definitely don't want to miss. Brian, thank you so very much for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Absolutely. So just going into a little bit about your background, you know, I know wine wasn't your first passion. So what led you to want to become a sommelier? Yeah, um, you don't raise your hand in kindergarten and say, I want to be a sommelier. That's that's not what was done, especially in the 80s when you have two borderline teetotaling parents. Um, my mother it gets drunk after one martini and my dad drinks scotch on occasion. So no wine background at all. And we, they were, I was the son of two teachers and put myself through college by working restaurant jobs and kind of stayed in that industry as I tried to write screenplays and pursue other passions. And, and, you know, I think there was a big turning point in 2008 when, the economy crashed. We kind of finding ourselves in a similar, if not more challenging moment right now. But uh, in, in 08, that was a moment to, to look inward and, and redefine oneself. And I started to look at the restaurant industry that had always been kind of a side gig and say, well, let's, let's tackle this, this wine thing. And uh, just kind of jumped in hook, like line and sinker. I think like most people do um, a lot of the, the people who were, gunning for the same um, pursuit, you know, you'd have 
ex-musicians, you'd have anything from high school dropouts who hustled pool for a living. I mean, this is a motley crew of characters <laughs> who sure. were shoulder to shoulder with me um, trying to become a sommelier. But uh, yeah, I, I went just headlong down that path and, you know, it chose me, I suppose. So, so were you working or you like spotlighting in a restaurant or, or something while you were pursuing writing screenplays or how did that kind of evolve? Well, I was working at a steakhouse in Orange County as a waiter and there, there wasn't really a sommelier. In fact, most of the people I'd say on my staff had no idea what a sommelier was and I didn't really understand. Um, until a master sommelier walked in the restaurant in 2004 and my manager was like, this guy's a master sommelier. There's only so many of them, a few hundred in the world, and he knows more about wine than any of us ever will, blah, blah, blah. Did you know what a sommelier was or were you like, what's a sommelier? I kind of heard the word, but but didn't really, there was a very low level of dial-up at that point. And I just knew this guy knew a lot about wine. And I, I knew that he ran a beverage program for a restaurant in Orange County called Napa Rose, which was in Disneyland. Um, but that was kind of the major sommelier training ground. And I ended up calling that guy four or five years later when I decided to get into wine. And he, he, you know, he had told me that night, if you ever wanted to get into wine, let me know. And I did. And he invited me to the restaurant and I watched people blind tasting and doing all this weird stuff, you know, looking at the sight of a wine, analyzing its components. And I was like, I'm in the wrong room. You know, I, I played baseball in college. I drank Bushnell's whiskey. This is not my scene. And he's like, right. just, just, you know, shut up, pay attention, take notes. And he said, you know, the average person can decipher 10,000 different smells which means the learning curve is not so steep if you actually want to create a language for those smells. So pay attention and see what happens. And he was right. Lo and behold, you start to realize that your palate is a lot sharper than you might think about if and when you want to spend your Friday, Saturday night analyzing wine instead of just drinking it and turning off. So uh, I started to realize that I think I could actually maybe pass this exam. So Basically, from the outset, I was like, I, all I know is I want to be a master sommelier. And I knew that economic pursuits were really important in that 08 period, as it was very hard to make money. You know, a lot of the people who were my best customers were in the mortgage industry and they had all lost their job and were applying for server jobs. It was a very surreal experience. Uh, and we were all fighting for shifts because no one was coming to the restaurant. So, I was very economically minded. I knew a master sommelier commanded a six-figure salary. So I'm like, maybe I can walk down this path. You know, I'm supporting a family. Um, let's see, let's see if this uh, if this works out. And a lot of that was chronicled um, in the first psalm film. So from the onset of deciding to become a psalm, you knew you wanted to become a master. I really had that goal in mind. Yeah. You know, when I was studying for the level one, I was studying levels beyond. And so there's four levels to the exam. And the introductory level is fairly passable. I'd say if you're a restaurant professional and you study, you know, there's an 80% pass rate with that exam, maybe higher. Um, for, in, for entry level? 
Yeah. And so at, at, after the, at the fourth level, which is the master level, the pass rate is under 5% and less than 20 people in the history of the exam have passed on their first try. So the failure rate is extremely high. So I was already trying to gun for that level from the outset. Wow. So for those who are listening who aren't familiar with documentaries, Psalm, Psalm Into the Bottle and Psalm 3, can you touch a little bit on the documentaries as well as kind of share your overall experience being part of the series? Yeah, my, my experience was incredibly personal. So uh, as I said, I was living in Orange County working at a steakhouse from 04 to 08. And in that time, I met a bartender from Chapman, uh, who was going to Chapman Film School, not far from where I worked. And we would sit up at a friend's house and drink wine all night and talk about films. This is in our 20s. And I remember him distinctly saying in the summer of 2009, once I had kind of made the leap down this path of becoming um, an MS, he said, I need to make a film before I'm 30. And I said, well, you should see the strange, weird people I'm hanging out with. And that was the beginning of song right there. So that was Jason Wise. He ended up being the director of, of song and it was his first feature film. He followed me with a camera and watched people for six hours. He's a very talkative gentleman and didn't say a single word for six hours. And then called me two weeks later. He's like, I haven't slept in two weeks. We need to make, we need to make this film. And so he saw the potential of it right out. And I think throughout the process of the, of the first Psalm movie, it became very clear that this film wanted to get made. Um, first of all, documentaries do not have a high success rate of even being picked up by a distribution company, let alone getting into a film festival. But Jason was very smart and threw out kind of a trailer before he even had full footage. He threw out kind of a teaser trailer on Twitter and it went viral. It was right when Twitter was in its heyday in 2011-ish. And that trailer was picked up by so many people that Bob Iger from Disney ended up calling Jason. Wow. And saying, I keep seeing this trailer. I have a wine collection. He's like, when am I going to see your movie? Can you send it? He's like, I haven't shot it yet. <laughs> and, you know, and so, and so he knew he had, he knew he had some sort of, um, leverage then. And usually you need a sales agent to pitch it to a film festival. He just, he had film festivals calling him. Wow. And so he ended up, um, launching in Napa, which made perfect sense for the wine thing. And, you know, we, we didn't expect anything during filming. I mean, this were three guys it was, a, it was a skeleton crew of like three people, a cameraman, a sound guy, and Jason. And they were like pigs on a blanket sleeping on our floor. So we knew this, this, this wasn't, you know, a big budget, you know, Spielberg situation. I mean, this was hardcore documentary on no money. And so none of us expected anything. And, and on day one at the film festival, there were lines all the way around the building and we could not believe it. And people were getting turned away angry. And so we knew something was happening and Goldwyn, Samuel Goldwyn picked up, picked it up later. And then it went on to make a lot of money as did the next three installments, including a fourth that's on its way, believe it or not. 
Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, become the Rocky trilogy of wine, wine documentaries, the Rocky saga, I should say. <laughs> well, that's, that's, not a, that's not a bad position to be in. I had no idea that it was such a, a skeleton crew before it all got started. Was he just like, hey, pretend that we're not here. Just do your thing. Go through the process. And we're just going to be here with cameras. It took a while to get used to the camera. Um, but after a while, you know, it was, I'd say about 80% of the film of the first movie was shot within the three to four weeks leading up to the exam. And that camera's always in your face from the moment you wake up. And in a way, I think it helped me because you have the tendency to get in your head yeah. in this exam. And it's, it's such a, just, it's, it's like, it's not like a sporting event where the game's on the line and you have to go up to the plate and hit the home run because you know, that moment's coming. So if like someone said to you, you're going to be like, someone looked at a crystal ball and said, you're going to be in game seven of the world series and the entire game's going to come down and fall on your shoulders and you're going to have to hit a home run to win the game. If someone told you that a year prior, how that would mess with your head, how that would mess with you training versus just being in the moment and existing, it, you know, that test causes you to go inward and face a lot of demons. So having the camera pulling you out of your own head, I think became a good thing for me as he asked me questions. Now, invariably he would ask, he would say things like, Brian, I, I really need someone to pass this test or I'm not going to have a movie. And that's not what you want to hear. Like no a, pressure a, a week before the exam. But, but um, yeah, it was, but don't it, screw it up. It was overall, exactly. It was overall a positive experience. And, and uh, I think I, I ended up benefiting from having it be filmed. That's interesting. I get asked all the time if if cameras bothered me during MasterChef filming too. And I th I think you're right. Like there's a portion, right, where you're like getting used to it and it's weird. And then it just I guess for you it didn't it didn't go away. It was just an added like, okay, let me let me do this. It pulled you out of your head. I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, it really did. I mean, it, it jar, it's jarring to have a camera in your face, you know, and, and in that way, that jarring might help you if you are have a tendency to go inward and go down a path maybe that is not so productive for your psyche. So, yeah, um, yeah, it broke it up. I mean, it, it, the other thing is the test is very social. You know, it's an exam where you have to where you're talking to a panel of people when you're doing a blind tasting. If you're in the service portion of the exam, it's you have to listen because you have unruly guests. They create a mock restaurant scenario, which is like, you know, the mock version of a gladiator essentially walking into an, an arena, not knowing what's coming out those doors. It's pretty, pretty stressful. And then the theory exam at the master level is oral. So again, you have to listen. And so if you're caught up in your head, I think a lot of people don't test well in that scenario and the camera forced us to get outside of our head and be social, which was a valuable skill that we had to not lose sight of going in there. So going into the exam, it's divided into the three different portions, theory, tasting, and service. Which one were you most concerned about and why? Tasting. I think that there's a very small handful of people who are really superior tasters and, and the, and the skill for, 
for blind tasting, it's it doesn't mean you have necessarily the best palate in the world or the best memory. It just means that your memory exists within taste. So like I can remember songs. I can remember like sitcom theme songs. And my memory is really geared towards music. And I can that's my recall mechanism. But with with taste, that's a completely different sense. And I don't have the best taste memory. I can taste things in the moment, but they, then they, f- they flee. And so I had to be tasting a lot of wine to keep these ideas in the memory banks, whereas there's other people who taste a wine one time, and 12 years later, they're handed a glass blind, and they're like, I had this 12 years ago. I remember. Is it really just they had it that one time 12 years ago, or they've developed it over time? Because that's that's phenomenal to me. I like to think I have a pretty good memory, but that that's a whole different level. Um, they've they've cultivated it, and certainly they were paying attention 12 years ago, but I could pay attention 12 years ago and not remember it next Friday. You know, that there yeah. there's something that they are able to file and categorize that is superhuman, and certain tasters have that capacity. I, I don't. And so if you don't have that capacity, you have to really just by trial and error, cultivate an understanding. And so what you ended up doing was you wouldn't try to know what the wine is when you tasted it. You would just work this grid. And as you started to be deductive about what are the flavors that I'm getting, what is the texture, what is the alcohol, what is the structure of the wine? If you are accurate with that, eventually the answer should present itself deductively. So that that was my path to the tasting exam. But that was the hardest and most elusive for most people. I always watch these things and I'm like, you guys have to have the craziest palates. I know one of my favorite parts from Psalm was when your fellow master Psalm Ian was blind tasting a Clare Valley Riesling and he said, it has the aroma of freshly opened can of tennis balls. (laughs) And I just... I like that's really out there. Like, I don't know what that like, I want to go smell a freshly opened bottle of tennis or, you know, container of tennis balls. But that's really interesting. Do do you feel like to become a psalm, you just have to have this near perfect, crazy, good palate? Sarah, you just have to spend your weekends smelling tennis ball cans. It's a lot of (laughs) lot of Wilsons and pens that you have to go through. Now, I the, you know, it, it's it sounds like really ridiculous and and it, it is I mean just stepping outside of my body and, and watching it it's ridiculous I think it's ridiculous to this day but you know that there what first of all Ian played college tennis and so he had that experience oh that makes sense the second of all Riesling is a reductive grape which means it's often uh, ex- not exposed to a lot of oxygen and wines like that which are often under screw cap or, or hit heavily with sulfur can have these like diesel gaseous smells. And if you've ever opened up a tennis ball can, it's preserved with all kinds of funky gases, keeping those balls fresh. So it's a similar thing. Makes sense. And so, um, yeah, I mean, Riesling can be petroly, and especially Clare Valley Riesling has that, that character. And so that was his, his wine descriptor of choice when it came to I love that. I I really like the abstract, you know, just not your, you know, 
what a person like me would say is just like very minor things, but that's very out there. And I thought that that was really cool. Um, what's the, it is super out there. What would, what's the most ridiculous wine descriptor that you've heard during a blind? But well, Ian takes the cake and, (laughs) and this one isn't going to sound ridiculous, but when you break it down, it really is. His, one of his favorite descriptors for minerality was crushed hillside. Crushed hillside. Like I'm just going to go lick the side of that hill. I know. And there's actually footage of me on camera that never made it in the film asking him, what does he mean by crushed hillside? Like, like is the hillside crushed or is the soil on the hillside? Cr- like, what are you talking about? First of all. And he goes, no, it's just like when you're on, when you're on a hike and like you're walking up a hill and there's soil and like, I'm like, well, just say soil. Why do you have to say a crushed hillside? He's like, cause you're on a hike, man. And like, you slip and fall and your fingers get dirty and you smell that. And I'm like, yeah, it's just, it's like any other soil, whether you're on flat ground or hillside. So I just beat him up for like hours on this crushed hillside description. He has a very good imagination. It sounds like. Overactive one might say. We obviously all do. We're all this, this band of misfits that this is what we spend our, our time doing. And it's, it's comical. I bet. I bet that would be so fun. Um, I think what's interesting about the blind tasting portion is after you and your fellow Master SOM candidates finished, you all come together to discuss what you thought about the what the wines were. Can you talk about during that process, um, kind of the, that crazy environment? And do you ever get to find out what the wines are from the court? No, you don't. And they do that for a specific reason. Uh, they don't want you knowing what the wines were. And if you don't pass, then thinking, okay, they poured me this last year, so I'm likely not to get the same thing. And so you start to game up the exam instead of paying attention to what's in the glass. And so that was the thinking behind not telling us. But yeah, we all drive ourselves mad because invariably, like, if there were 50 people sitting in the exam, maybe four or five passed tasting. And the first time I took it, no one passed. So um, you know that everybody's going to call different things. And so you drive yourself mad, as you saw in the film, where I'm like, that was Sauvignon Blanc. And no one's like, no, that was Albarino. And then like 10 people in the room didn't call Sauvignon Blanc. I'm like, that was the only wine I was sure was Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> and so... You end up feeling real. You're in your head. And you're feeling really low. So the best is just to ignore people completely or torture yourself as best you can. But I mean, it's like the whole pursuit. If you've ever seen, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's like best in show. If you've ever seen that movie about that comedy, it's like a mockumentary. Except this is not a mockumentary. It's, it's real. I haven't. Well, you got to see it. It's like Christopher Guest and Jane Lynch and all these hilarious people. It's like all about a dog show. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very fetishy world. My mother was a Rosarian and she used to exhibit flowers for like blue ribbons. It was a similar type of thing. She'd be opening up rose petals with Q-tips to make sure it budded perfectly for the judges. And I'm like, when I started to get into this wine thing, I'm like, what does this remind me of? You know, it's like, oh yeah, the 6 a.m., my mother would drag me to these rose shows to help her, you know, wipe mildew off of leaves or whatever else to win a blue ribbon. Um, and the people are obviously very interesting and reductive and myopic and 
brilliant, but very hyper-focused, I should say, is the kindest way of putting it. And so I, I existed in that world, and I must have some of that in me, or I wouldn't have done it. Would you call yourself a naturally over-analytic person? I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I call myself a passionate and competitive person, but I suppose not over-analytical, no. I, I think Ian, Ian definitely could be potentially accused of that. Um, we, all, we all have that tendency to overanalyze something, I think. Others more, more than some. Yeah, I agree. I, I tend to fall into that category, so... I was just curious because I'm just, even as I'm asking you these questions, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and just the things that would be going through my head would be questioning everything, which maybe is just a natural thing there. Well, that's the thing. And a lot of the people who struggle with that don't test well because they end up second guessing. Like in the movie, Ian passed the tasting the first time, but he ended up going back and switching the, the wines like knee jerk just switched them he's like no this is that and this is that and that's why he failed and they had to wait another year to take the test again it's horrible interesting that is horrible but and, and, and but he didn't get to find out if it was what he first thought it was we all we all knew we all knew because those who passed them there are five you, you you knew you know you don't know but you knew and so um, he knew he had it and we, we knew he had it, but he came back and fixed that problem and passed. And that was that. And this was like, this is 2011. This was almost 10 years ago with all this went down. Just wild. So tor- towards the end of Psalm, right before you entered the room to hear the results from the legendary Fred Dame, um, the godfather of American sommeliers, no pressure. What were you feeling? Well, I was working for Fred at the time. So Fred and I had a very different relationship. It was, you know, a very, almost a father-son type relationship, but he's very much a militaristic, tough love, Socratic. Um, and he has a very interesting motivational style. <laughs> so what would you call it? Uh Negative reinforcement. <laughs> <laughs> the beatings will stop when morale improves. Exactly, exactly. So he, he uh, but but for, underneath that tough exterior is, is a heart of cold and, and he bled for us and wanted nothing more for, than for us to do well. And so it was surreal going into that room, but I, I'm sure it would have been surreal if anybody had been there. I'm, I'm really glad it was Fred who gave me my results because, you know, you want someone, whether you pass or fail in, in those moments, to be someone you know and that cares about you. So you feel like you have a safety net there. So when you passed, um, you were less than one of 200 people in the world to earn it or to earn the, the title of Master Psalm. What did it mean to you, you know, your, your family? What would just kind of because the process was so long, was it um was it a relief? Was it sadness in terms of like, you know, because you studied with a group and not everyone passed. So what was, what was kind of the emotion? I imagine it was a lot of emotions running really high. There was a lot of emotions. Yeah. It, it was a tremendous amount of relief to be done. And then a tremendous amount of what now, and then what now was followed by, Oh shit. 
because here's the funny thing. If you pass the master sommelier exam and you're not ready, you end up in a really awkward position. And I, I was not ready. So when I first took the intro, it was the summer of 2008 and I passed the master exam in February of 2011. So it went two and a half years from zero to 60. And I had maybe worked as a sommelier on the floor two years or not two years, two days. Wow. And so to go through that whole exam in two years and then to only have had that much experience and have never bought wine, all of a sudden people are calling me up. Hey, I want you to consult on my restaurant's wine list and this and that. I'm like, oh my God, like I need to catch up to this degree that I got, but don't haven't really earned yet. And, and that was the reality for me. And I think they've made a lot of changes in the exam to safeguard against people slipping through the cracks. But I was certainly one of those people who slipped through the cracks. And so uh, it, I've been playing catch up in a way ever since. And I guarantee I've learned more in my post MS career than, than anything leading up to that exam. What's the what's the typical, I guess, then sort of um, trajectory for a master sommelier? Once you do pass, it sounds like there's a, a pretty uh, normal path that that you would go to. I mean, there are so few of you that it would seem that way. What does that typically look like? Is it creating restaurant lists for, or is it creating wine lists for restaurants, or what? What does that look like? Yeah, I I don't think it's 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 a one size fits all. And certainly my path was not the norm. I ended up launching a business in, uh, it was a wine, wine bar and retail shop, which some, some master sommeliers have gone that route. Others take kind of big boy corporate jobs because the pay is incredible. So you could, you know, if you're with some of the bigger distribution companies or conglomerates, you can make up to 250,000 plus dollars a year even back then. And I, I, being the um, slightly masochistic person, did not go that path and wanted to do something that was different and that inspired me. And I I wanted to be my own boss. And uh, so I, I launched that wine bar and retail shop in Santa Barbara, which was a complete disaster. Even though on the outside, it was a lovely place and it kind of a crown jewel of the community. Uh, it was a disastrous business relationship, but it taught me everything about business and, and really set up the next phase of my life with the wine club that I have now, Viticle. Can we talk a little bit about Viticle? So you showcase amazing wines from all over the world. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to form Viticle? I know that you it's pretty well known how you feel about wine clubs amongst the wine community, right? You're not a typical fan of them. Yeah. Is that right? That's true. So what was uh, what was the thought behind Viticol? How did that come into play? It was classic me, which is fly by the seat of your pants, announce that you're launching a business. Perfect. And then try to figure out what it is while a website's being built out vaguely. So I threw out <laughs> a few you know, offers on Instagram in early 2016 of wines that I liked and sold like 20 cases in an hour. I'm like, you can do that on Instagram. Wow. You know, and Instagram was a very different algorithm back then. So it was kind of in its, its upswing. And so it was a very 
good time to really use Instagram as a social media platform. And it, it did wonders for my business. It's the sole marketing platform. But I, people were asking me if I want to do a wine club. And, you know, any investor would be like, you know, because I was looking at doing like a something similar to Ian, but different, where it was like a flash sale every day. And the next day would be another wine. And I was like, what if I did something once a month? And like, which is every investor's nightmare, right? Because it's like, what are you doing the other 29 days of the month to generate revenue? And so I wanted a monthly wine club and specifically because I hated the wine club model. It, it's, it was always within retail, I think, either something that's just gimmicky and cheap, which is fine. Or if it's a more mid-tier to high-end thing, it's like a retailer is trying to get rid of inventory on the shelf that they can't sell. And so they want to create a different revenue stream. And it's really not thought out for people who give you their credit card to swipe at will. And those people should be getting the best one because they're placing all their faith in you and putting their money where their mouth is. So I wanted to create something where it was consumer forward. And I didn't really know what existed in the wine club model in a $35 to $50 price bottle. And launched that with organic wines. And right away, I, I just got a ton of interest. And I was super fortunate. That was all from Instagram and a lot of it from the platform that Psalm built. And what it has evolved into today is unbelievable. I could have never imagined. It's not that long ago. So then your wine list, how do you, how do you cultivate that? What are you looking for when you're, you're coming up with what wines to, to send to your subscribers? Well, in 2015, I got really into natural wine. And the funny thing about going for a master sommelier degree is you're so focused on nailing wines that you really don't pay a lot of attention to figuring out exactly what you like. And so it was really after the test that I started to discover, what do I actually like to drink? And I kept coming across these natural wines, which were made with minimal intervention, no sulfur. Oftentimes, wines that are made that way, they have a lot of just natural trapped CO2, which is a byproduct of fermentation, and that becomes the safety net protecting them. So they end up having a texture more like kombucha, almost spritzy. They're often cloudy because they're unfiltered. And I... Started to like the freshness and the energy and the range of flavors that you just don't get in technically classic wines, let's say. And so slowly I've been walking down that path to the point where now there's a lot of no sulfur cuvées being made. And since the beginning, I was working with organic producers, and now that has taken a completely new turn into regenerative agriculture, which is just a organic plus movement that is trying to make a cultivated place a little more wild with you know livestock rotational grazing with grasses being left year round uh, encouraging biodiversity making sure plants go to flower and there's pollinators in the vineyards and what we're finding out is not only is this good for trapping carbon in the soil as we have this this climate change that's been affecting us but it's great for encouraging yeah. the lack of species die off and encouraging life. And 
within a system that has life, any agricultural product is going to be more nutrient dense and is going to be going to taste better. A wild strawberry tastes way better than a cultivated strawberry in monocrop. And if so much, if you're going to a market and you see free range eggs and then you crack open that egg and it's bland and light yellow and runny, there's a good chance that 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 chicken was not foraging in a life abundant setting. Maybe they were being fed grain or something and they weren't in a cage, but they weren't out there in a life abundant setting eating insects like chickens are meant to do. And when that happens, the yolks become really dark and orange and the flavor of those eggs starts to transcend. And that's really just kind of a word picture for what happens to any crop or animal product in a life abundance setting. There's a, a, a higher level of flavor and a higher level of health in that. And so there's no real line between the vineyard and the cellar in terms of health and flavor. When you do all that work to reduce inputs in a vineyard and encourage life and not till soil and not rip out trees and whatever else to push yield to the maximum, you might be giving up some yield to the ecosystem, but you're developing a higher intensity of flavor and health in the finished product, especially if you shepherd that yeast and that wealth of microbial populations in that setting all the way to bottle. And so excessive racking and filtering all these amendments in wine and then using synthetic yeast, these are all things that detract from encouraging that life and health and flavor. And so that is the path that Viticole has taken in untangling that knot, so to speak. Because it's important not just for agriculture, but for us in general. Definitely. You know, I'm starting to hear a little bit more about regenerative agriculture in the wine business. Do you feel like it's starting to catch hold or do you feel like there still needs to be a lot more education in like in wine production for that? Or is it mostly about bottom line? Well, it's starting, but these people are not going to typically get rich off of it. But the people who do it aren't trying to get rich. They enjoy the lifestyle. They enjoy the communal lifestyle. They enjoy eating healthy food, being integrated with nature, being in a thriving ecosystem, having a communal family work the land with them, and encouraging a more agrarian existence, just like you know homesteaders in early colonial times. So uh, there's a lot of joy and fulfillment and riches beyond monetary gain living that existence. And that's what I'm starting to see as I start to, because all of my collaborations, it's not like I'm just buying wine from a retailer or an importer, uh, I should say. I'm, I do custom collaborations at the winery door. So I spend time in these families' homes. I, I know their children. I watch them grow up. And we are a family you know, uh, all over the world from Tenerife to Oregon. And you start to see people head down a path, then you can't help but want to go down that path with them. And sometimes you want to push them down that path too. And so 
Yeah. So, yeah, I, I would say that that regenerative agriculture, whether it's scalable or not, remains to be seen. But it, let me let me give you an example in, in the cider world. Uh, I am in the Pacific Northwest as we speak, and I can't count how many orchards I've walked by with just fruit decaying on the ground that was left unharvested because a farmer didn't know what to do with that fruit. Well, now if you have certain fruit that's relegated for produce and certain fruit that's relegated for cider, and if you start, instead of trying to specialize, perhaps working in polyculture like we need to be, like we used to do, and having not only a, a range of products, but multiple applications for those products, maybe it creates another revenue stream so that produce farmer actually has a thriving business. And if wine and cider become the tax and the revenue supplement, then the produce becomes a lot cheaper and they can work off thinner margins and you can start to feed a community a lot more affordably and hopefully teach a community how to grow their own food as well. You know, and so all of a sudden these are just this is just becomes a path for us as a human species trying to reintegrate back into nature, which one could make the argument, especially in these brave times, that we should have never left. Absolutely. No, I think that's really fascinating. I love that you're doing that with your wine club too. And like from the cooking aspect of it, I'm always very like small farmer, very uh, not a fan of big agriculture at all. Um, so I, I think that that's really cool that you're and also giving a voice to those smaller producers, those family owned vineyards. But also, I, I think it's interesting what you're talking about, about cider. I know when we had our conversation before this, you you were talking about there being so many amazing ciders, saying that American ciders were actually pretty phenomenal if you look at Yeah, I think in, in kind of, uh, if you look back in, in the history of cider, I think France and Spain were really kind of the places that were traditionally where, where cider was made, you know, in... France, it's Brittany and Normandy in the Northwest, and there was a lot of English cider. Brittany and Normandy are obviously highly tied to English culture being so geographically close, and intertwined throughout kingdoms and, and historical record. But Spanish cider as well. And when pilgrims first came over to America, they took apple seeds from, uh, from Europe with them, and they planted seeds everywhere. And what they, what they realized in colonial times was the, the apples that came off of American farms were way more intense and way more flavorful. And if you look at where apples originated, because apples are not native to the United States, um, they originated in Central Asia, which was highly mountainous with extremely harsh winters. And you don't have, you, you know, France and Spain is a lot more temperate. But if you've ever lived through a New York, New York winter, it's incredibly harsh, you know. And in the Green Mountains yeah. and Vermont and like all these enclaves in the in the colonies were kind of perfect breeding grounds for the for the apple. And so this became a huge global export very very early from the earliest point of our settlement. And water was bad at that time, so people homesteaded and made cider in lieu of of water 
and that's what they would drink at home. And this became the beverage all the way up until really the industrial age when urbanization happened and all of a sudden you have uh, a, a massive influx of people and a population boom in New York and people are leaving these orchards abandoned and we're moving to big far, uh, big agriculture and cheap grain is supplanting um, apple orchards and pear orchards and all of a sudden beer becomes the drink of choice at that point. And right around this time, the temperance movement began and then prohibition put the nail in the coffin. And we've completely lost our cider history up until really about 10 years ago. And now there is this movement in America happening. And it's a very different style of cider compared to French and Spanish cider. You know, the French cider is often with residual sugar. There's some sweetness there. It's often a little bit more oxidative and apple-y. And in Spain, you, you have some of these Basque ciders, which are really natural, almost to the point of being like aldehydic and a little funky. And, but they're often a little bit thinner too. And in America, especially from coast to coast in the north, if you head from the Pacific Northwest all the way to the Northeast, you have a dry style that's emerging from a few quality conscious producers that's really fresh, really intense, and has a higher amplitude. And what I mean by that is normally cider is like beer strength at like six or seven percent alcohol. And some of these crab right. apples that they're discovering are, you know, have the same sugar and acid ratios as wine grapes. And you're starting to get 9, 10, 11% alcohol ciders that are aged on their leaves for two or three, four years. And these are starting to taste like really fine wine that's been aged. And so the producers, it's a small collection, but often, often they are foraging people like Aaron Burr, uh, Andy Brennan, who wrote a book called Uncultivated. So if anybody wants to get into cider, that's the book to read. Um, Uncultivated. Yeah, and, and he forages for wild cider varieties. And the funny thing about trees that are planted from seed is you basically have a crop that doesn't fruit every year. So there's your, there's your vision of the American dream so quickly evaporating, right? But then you also have – so like if it was a red delicious apple, which is not – that's more of a tasting apple. It's not a cider apple, but let's just use it because everybody knows it. If you took red delicious apple seeds and you, let's say there's five seeds in that apple and you planted them in different places and you got five trees, none of them would be red delicious apples and none of those trees would be the same. And they could have a red flesh because of cross pollination and you end up with a totally different tree. And that's how trees have survived for this you know, when, when orchards were abandoned, that's how trees survived. You know, they'd drop the fruit, an animal would come by, eat it, and then it would poop out a seed somewhere else and a tree would grow up. And so Andy Brennan is literally finding apple trees in forests all over um, the Northeast. And that's there's a lot of producers wow. who are starting to follow suit there and doing really brave and interesting and low talk about low input viticulture it doesn't get more low input than that and the, <laughs> the other thing about an apple there's there's multiple things so how i got into this was i started seeing a lot of producers putting fruit trees in their vineyards 
And they did this for multiple reasons. One, with the rise of climate change, a tree will provide added shade and cool down the grapes. The other thing it does is a fruit tree has the same similar nutrient needs to grapevines. They share a lot of DNA. And so they have more of a desire to work symbiotically than competitively side by side. So uh, obviously with, with an apple tree, you think about the roots of an apple tree, that can go really, really deep versus a grapevine, which is a little bit more fragile. And so that what, what happens is, is the apple tree or nut tree, whatever it is, will knows, they're really smart. It knows that, that the grapevine has trouble penetrating heavy soil and going deep. So it creates pathways and actually keeps itself on the surface, almost lifting up the curtain for grapevines roots to go deeper, which is incredible. Wow. Nature at its finest. That's it is amazing. amazing. And on, on above ground, you have a lot more life being added into a system of agroforestry, which is bringing different critters, different microbes, different flora and fauna into the mix. And all of a sudden, the wealth of yeast populations and microbial activity, if you ferment with native yeast that just lives on the grapes, that stuff gets into the flavor of the wine and adds complexity to it. And so you're seeing a lot of wine producers starting to work with cider and a lot of cider producers starting to work with wine. And it's a very, very fun time for that. That's fascinating. Now, you said that they're, the type of apple that you eat is different than a cider apple. Is that right? They're, they're two different types? Yeah, typically the, the best apples for cider are often incredibly insipid in the sense that they're really acidic, really tart, really tannic, really hard. But that balance of bitter, acidic, and intense sugar, which is what we used colonially for pies forever right? Like this was like really good pie fruit, right? Um, sure. You know, yeah. that, that stuff is not considered the normal like table apple. Uh, they're, they're a lot blander than these cider varieties, which are incredibly intense, but they make for really robust beverages um, and pies. And so, uh, yeah, the, it's, it's a totally different ball game, especially as you get into trees that were planted from seed and are just pushing the genetic progression forward, which was dwindling heavily. We had hundreds of thousands of apple varieties, and now we're down to like 4,000 or something like that, right? And so to see apple um, or cider makers starting to push the genetic progression by keeping these wild trees alive, it's, it's only a matter of time before new varieties emerge and with it new uh, agents of health and flavor complexity, which is fun. Very cool. So you said that some of these ciders that you're experiencing are like as complex and nuanced as a great glass of wine. It's not, you know, unfortunately right now it's kind of like you go into the grocery store and it's all mass produced cider, not anything that you would think of like, Oh, this is amazing, which is unfortunate. Yeah. We're not talking about the white claw genre, but we are talking to (laughs) a range within 15 to to $25 price point of really, really serious cider that drinks like a wine that would be double, triple, quadruple its price. And we really haven't seen the full effect of that because this 2.0 movement hasn't been around long enough to see ciders going back 
three, four decades and aging beautifully and seeing what they become like we have with, with other things. But I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 or 20 years, we, we wouldn't see ciders on the auction market without question. And, you know, cider's a lot easier to work with than wine grapes. Uh, first of all, the, the fruit is more sturdy. And often what's true of the fruit is true of how it goes for the beverage. So, you know, a, a grape, well, a grape, uh, uh, so what is what does a grape want to do? A grape wants to ensure its survival just like any of us do. And it does that by creating fruit that is attractive. And with a berry or a grape, right, it's very easy for a bird to take that grape, fly over to a tree, you know, disperse of that seed. And, you know, it's a very easy and efficient carrier for the survival of grapevines. Now, an apple has it harder because it's bigger and no bird is going to get its beak around that. It's also high up. So most of the animals that it has to attract are on the forest floor. So how do you get it to them? They can't climb trees. So the apple is smart and it knows it has to drop to the ground. It also knows that it has to be sturdy enough to survive the fall and not split open. It has to hold its constitution for a couple of days. So an animal walks by and eats it and, you know, unceremoniously poops down the road in a different place. Right. And so it's a sturdier crop. And we see that when we're fermenting it into cider that you can work minimal, minimally with no additions and no sulfur. And the wine does not turn on you easy like it does with, with grapes, which are a lot more finicky and require a tremendous amount of finesse to actually have a stable product. Cider is a lot easier to work with in that capacity. And so what we're seeing now is different perennial fruits and even some vegetables in certain places actually getting into a fermenting vessel and being married together. It's already happening. But that becomes really interesting because now, you know, like putting together a fruit salad, you're starting to see different botanicals end up in these cider and wine combinations that could be amazing. Absolutely amazing. We're just scratching the surface of it. And so... Seems seems like the possibilities for it are pretty endless. Well, the implications of it for the environmental um, issues that are facing our world today are incredibly, incredibly potent and important. And so if we are trying to work with diverse cropping systems and, and polycultural farms and go back to that setting where life is thriving and resilient because of the abundance and diversity. Now, now we're really getting into to health and encouraging and fostering ecosystems in the process while trapping an incredible amount of carbon in the soil from biomass. So I, I, I think agriculture is probably the most important revolution for the climate cause. And you could easily make a case that of all the crops, cider and wine become the most important social vehicle for that change simply because the storytelling potential the tourism that, that is around it walks right up to the tasting room door if you visit a winery you can't really say that about most restaurants and you don't really have a lot of corn farmers with heavy tourism and and consumers rolling in and out so this becomes a really really potent vehicle for raising awareness 
I think that that's really awesome. And it just even, like you said, the storytelling behind it, I'm, I have this picture in my head where it's just like everything is working harmoniously within that ecosystem. It just makes me want to, well, not eat one of those apples because they're more tart, but bit, maybe big pie with them. You know, it just sounds a lot more sustainable, which it is. So I think that that's really cool. So you've made it a mission to start including ciders that are farmed sustainably as part of your wine club or your spirits club or viticles club? Yeah, it's slowly becoming a fermented beverage company and will probably end up looking like a market down the road. Um, but yeah, it's starting with cider. So the fall shipment, we'll see one or two ciders. And then from there, the sky is really the limit. Um, I'm limited by the amount of regenerative farms that actually exist. Uh, which you could all put on one PowerPoint slide. But that is honestly wow. rapidly changing. And I, I really am very optimistic and uh, positive about the direction that I see in, in the wine world. And certainly it helps to be steeped in that small community. And um, I, I think it's going to be really fun. I think this could go a number of different ways, but I, I really want to see it encouraging people to do their own trials at home. You know, if they have an apple tree or a lemon tree or any tree that, you know, they use a couple lemons for, for stuff. And then, you know, the lemon tree just falls to the ground as it does with the apple tree and, you know, the birds get it or, or whatever, you know, it would be really interesting to see people growing their own food and start becoming a part of that conversation. Cause I feel like we all, we all need to for so many different reasons. So, yeah, I, I just see a very brave and, and, and beautiful world emerging. And in the time of COVID, these are the types of things that we need to be thinking about. Because I'll tell you what, the people who are, are dealing with this current pandemic, they're not the people in urban centers. These are the people who are really bleeding and hemorrhaging right now. It's the people who are growing their own food in rural settings who are really have a leg up right now. So I think it should be food for thought for a lot of people as, as we, we try to reinvent what urban and rural existence could potentially look like. Absolutely. I think that's such an important message, especially, especially now, like you said, um, well, I think that that's really cool. And I, I'm really excited to try some more ciders. Um, what, where would somebody go? I guess go to your website, viticol.com, or uh, how, how would somebody start the process of getting more involved with sharing that message of regenerative farm, farming and kind of, you know, the, the almighty dollar speaks. So kind of where they should start to focus their spending if they do want to buy wines that are that are naturally regenerated on, on the smaller farms. Yeah. Right. Right now there is a, a, for people who, who want uh, certification, there is a company, the regenerative organic Alliance, which just emerged within the last couple of years uh, that certifies people who are already certified organic and has a tier system of bronze, silver and gold for people farming at high levels of, of regenerative organic. But I, I do want to make the point that regardless of certification, it's really all about a path. And certifications at best become training wheels. And training wheels are important. But at a certain point, you, yeah. need, to, you need to ride the bike. And so 
I, I really, I, I really think that this is a dynamic movement, and the, the question just becomes: Can I encourage more life? Can I reintegrate with nature more? And that path is really an endless path, and quite a beautiful path at that. And so, yeah, if if you want to start somewhere, start with the Regenerative Organic Alliance. Um, my wine club has a little bit of content on it, and if you want to take part in some of the wines and eventual ciders that will be making their way. Um, you can you can always sign up and we'll create room for you there. Uh, from a food standpoint, I think Regenerative Organic Alliance has a lot of vetted brands and farms that you can look towards. And Patagonia has really embraced this with their food line, Patagonia Provisions, which is probably doing really, really well right now, considering people need things shipped to them. It's their kind of online food store for snacks that come out of regenerative organic systems. So, um, yeah, there's, those are a few good places to look for the American consumer. Very cool. So I guess my last question is, uh, well, I have to actually, um, what's, what's next for Viticol or for you? Um, well, I don't know. Right now we're, we're at a, at a time of, of travel. I, I've been traveling so much since the inception of Viticol and I really wanted to cut down my travel for more reasons than one. You know, you can't get on your environmental soapbox and be on a plane 365 days out of the year. That, that doesn't work for me. So consolidate a lot of plane flights and have moved to, for, for domestic travel, moved almost exclusively to trains. And, um, you know, now I find myself in a very fun time where I get to continue, continually imagine where Viticol could go. So cider is that next foray. And then from there, probably a range of vinegar and non-alcoholic products as well. So this starts to become almost an apothecary for health and wellness and, and environmental sensitivity. So really that's that's not a, a static situation it's an ongoing movement and so I'm, I'm constantly looking at at different ways to not only do that but we're creating a false uh, fall newsletter to raise awareness that'll be hopefully ready by the end of the fall with with a, a very different bent on typical wine and cider writing which has been fairly myopic and reductive and more you know geeky and tech sheet oriented to now really taking a lot of these concepts and integrating them with real world issues. And so that's kind of the next step and looking for a lot of partners in, in the food world and other industries to help create a symbiotic voice. You know, I, I think if, if I, if I believe that polyculture, it has to exist in a vineyard, then I, I have to support it in the supply chain. And so it can't just yeah. be a, a monoculture, which it has been since 2016. I've just been supporting wine. And so I can't get on the soapbox and start to advocate for diversity and not live it. So that's, that's my area of opportunity. Do you, feel, do you feel like you're getting a lot of people embracing it? Or is it still a little bit of resistance because it's just kind of an un, unknown topic? Yeah, I've had a lot of people drop out of the wine club once they found out cider. But I had a lot of people drop out of the wine club when I started supporting New World Chardonnay. People are like, New World Chardonnay, oaky, buttery, I don't <laughs> want that. I'm like, I don't think you understand the new world Chardonnay that I like. And I think we need to have a conversation about it and taste it. And so we won that battle slowly and, you know, eventually we'll win the cider battle, but it just takes time. I, I understand people 
you, you all, everybody has a, has conceptions and is resistant to change and, you know, doesn't want to put their money on something they, they feel like they, they understand and know, but, um, there's really, really fun things happening. And I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm a, it's a polarizing, there's polarizing ideas being <laughs> submitted by Viticle. And so you're going to get people on both sides of the aisle, you know, either talking smack or, or be, or incredibly supportive. I, I, I don't worry about it. I'm walking down my own path. It's very, it's very personal and incredibly self-indulgent. I'll admit that. But, um, you know, I, I, I've said this before. It almost sounds like a cliche, but I, I'm not here developing a business. I, I'm having a business develop me. So the decisions I make are for my enrichment and personal development. And then they inspire the ideas that come out of that development. So it's just all very organic. No, I love that. I think that that's really cool. And I think that that's something that's necessary. I know you and I talked about before how it's like, if you think about it, Napa being a respected you know, wine region isn't even that old. Like it's still relatively new. But then if you ask anyone who's like our age, it's like, oh yeah, Napa. But now you're talking about ciders and I feel like, you know, 30 years from now, it's going to be like, oh yeah, ciders, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, I, it'll be a very interesting world to see ciders on the auction market. That is going to be a funny, a funny <laughs> world. That's very hard to imagine, but you know, people couldn't imagine Syrah, you know, for a thousand dollars a bottle, like some Syrahs are being um, commanded now. You know, I mean, it's, it is what it is. I think the important thing is as we reintegrate with, with nature, we start to understand where everything comes from. I mean, I, I, I'm a city boy, the clothes on my back, the products that I buy from toothpaste to anything, it, there's, there's a total disconnect as to where these things come from. And we need to be more sensitive to, to where they come from, you know, in order for overpopulation to, to, to work and thrive, because there's enough food to feed people and there's, there's enough of ability to live with less and for us not to, to injure this ecosystem and disfigure it like we have been. And so as the sensitivity increases, you know, wine, wine and cider are just, just the beginning of that evolution. I, I was a city boy. I've been a city boy my whole life growing up in LA, born in Hollywood. And now I live in a wood cabin infiltrated with mice in the woods. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a very different life for me now. And I freaking love it. I really love it. I, I couldn't have said it three or four years ago. I couldn't have said it two years ago. I love it. That's awesome. Yeah. So for any of you listening who aren't familiar with Brian, you should check out his Instagram and you'll see exactly what he's talking about. Definitely a mountain man through and through now or a, a cabin right. man. Exactly. <laughs> no. A re, re, yeah, recovering city boy for sure. Recovering city boy. No, I think that's I think that's really interesting. And I'm definitely interested to try out more ciders. It's something I had never thought about, honestly, until you and I talked and it's, you know, when I think of cider, I think of what, what's that brand that has like a beaver and an apple. On it or right. something. It's just like, it's, it's garbage. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, so I'm excited to explore the kind of the, the more nuanced and smaller batch ciders. I think that could be really fun. Yeah, definitely. And if you need a list of people, I'll, 
send them your way. Definitely. There's, there's some really brave stuff. So hi, you has done a, a great job with their Floreal collaboration in the Pacific Northwest. That's in the gorge, not far from where I live. So look for that cider. Um, Aaron Burr is kind of the godfather of this 2.0 movement. That's Andy Brennan. Um, those are a lot harder to find, but you know, look it up on the website. They have a list of distributors and retailers that you could reach out to by email. And then a fable farm in Vermont. And, you know, there's art and science on a man. There's uh, floral Tyrannus, which is in New York as well. You know, some of these people have day jobs too and ma- make these ciders in their garage. It's a really fun time, you know, and a really novel time. And won't, won't always be like this. And we'll, we'll talk about the days when the world-class cider was $18 or $25, you know, <laughs> yeah. We'll record a podcast again in 30 years from now for this topic. Hey, you remember when uh, it wasn't even yeah. a thing? Yeah. So it's a, it's a fun time and, and I'm uh, like you relatively new to it as well. So it's, it's uh, going to be fun to track. That's awesome. Okay. Well, for the people listening, I'll have uh, Vitical, the Vitical website in the description of the podcast, as well as um, any other resources, you know, the other resources you've been talking about with the, the different ciders. If I can get those from you, that'd be fantastic. But I really appreciate your time and kind of walking me through your experience and becoming a master psalm and ciders and all of the things, especially, you know, now it's um, focusing on on the sort of regenerative farming farming is um, is super important as you know, we have all the stuff going on with COVID and just a lot of uncertainty kind of getting back to our Mm -hmm. roots and, and kind of um, taking less advantage of mother nature and kind of treating her with more respect, I think is, is really important. I couldn't agree more and love it. Thank you for having me. It's been a, been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on the incredible stories we have coming up next. Also, please leave us a review. Your thoughts and feedback means the world to us in this community that we've built just for you. You can send me notes directly at sarah at everydayfoodandwine.com. Let me know what food and wine topics you'd love to learn more about. Also, please follow us on Instagram at everydayfoodandwine, as well as our amazing guest at Brian McClintic MS. That's B-R-I-A-N-M-C-C-L-I-N-T-I-C-M-S and share this episode with someone you know that would love the content. We'll also be announcing how to become part of our Corkit Club at the end of the next episode for exclusive member content. Please stay tuned for the next episode where I sit down with the founder of arguably the most disruptive wine app in the world, Vivino, Mr. Heine Zachariasen.